James chapter 1, I'm just going to read one verse for us, and we're going to spend a little bit of time just on this one verse, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We're going to spend a little while just on this verse. This is a great verse all by itself. But this verse also, just like the other sections of this chapter, ties together all the previous verses and sets the stage for the next verses. As we've been seeing, we've read James over the years and studied James. Whenever we're t talking about trials, we would run to James chapter 1, verses uh, uh, 2 and following, and say, count it all joy when you face trials. And then on top of that, we would also, then if we need wisdom, we'd look at James 1, verses 5 through 8, and talk about how if anybody lacks wisdom, let them do this or that, and so on. But at the same time, as we've been looking at, these verses all tie together. There's a continual thought. There's a flow that's happening here. For example, trials and tests, verses 2 through 4, tell us that they come to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. And that's why we should receive them with joy. Verses 5 through 8, because God is working out His purposes in our lives, we need God's wisdom in our trials so we can line up our lives with His purposes. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Go back to Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 18 real quick and take a look at what it says in Romans chapter 8 verse 18 Paul says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us and then jump down to verses 26 through 29 likewise the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So look closely how this is all tied together. Paul says the suffering we go through is not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. But at the same time, the suffering we go through in this life has a purpose. It's just not random. It's just not arbitrary. And the Holy Spirit in those times will help us because the Holy Spirit will be praying for us in accordance with the purposes of God and the will of God. You're going to see that a little bit more tonight as we move into temptation and so on. But then verses 9 through 11 showed us last week that both poverty and wealth are trials, but wealth is actually the harder test. And then verse 12 says this, Blessed is the one who passes the test who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The Bible tells us that blessed are those who pass the test because their perseverance, their steadfastness in the test, is proof of their sure salvation. One of the strongest evidences of real salvation is that when you've come through your trial, whatever it is, your faith remains. This crown of life, by the way, that he talks about, could also be translated the crown which is life. In other words, go to John chapter 5, verse 24. I'll let the scripture say it instead of me putting it in other words. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Don't miss something here. A lot of people say they can't wait until they get to heaven until they can experience eternal life. If you're in Christ Jesus, your eternal life has already begun. You, you, have, 
you have eternal life right now. It's already begun. The fullness of it will be seen and fully experienced when we get out of these bodies. But until then, we're down here for His, his purposes. He's shaping us for future reward and glory. He's using us for His glory now here in, in front of the world and in front of the angels and the demons. And the Bible actually says He'll reward us in the life to come for what He's allowed to do in and through us in this life. But we need to keep in mind that God has His reasons for the trials we go through. We need wisdom? Ask God. At the same time, some of your trials may be poverty. Some of your trials may be wealth. But blessed are those who have stood the test, because those are the ones who will receive the crown, which is life. Go to Revelation chapter 2. You'll see some more uh, of places in Scripture that talk about this crown of life. Revelation chapter 2, look at verses 9 through 11. Jesus here is writing to the church in Smyrna, and he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Isn't that interesting? He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him spirit sit here. The spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 6 and then verses 14 and 15. Revelation 20 verse 6. It says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they're going to reign with him for a thousand years. Jump down to verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So let's put this all together. In Revelation 2, he's told the church there in Smyrna, he says, you're about to go through a time of trouble. And actually, some of you are going to be put to death. Satan's going to be allowed to put some of you in prison, and some of you are going to be put to death. Be faithful even unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And on top of that, um, he then says, blessed are those who have faith. They won't be hurt by the second death. Get over to chapter 20, and we realize the scripture says that there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous, and at the end of the thousand years is going to be the resurrection of all the wicked dead, and they're going to go before the great white throne judgment. Folks, whenever you hear about the great white throne judgment, it's not for you as a believer. Christians are going to experience the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. What will be determined, what will be determined is our reward for our faithfulness to God after salvation. Salvation has already been given to us. Whether we get into heaven or not, it's already, already guaranteed. We've already passed from death to life. But we will be rewarded. But there's a judgment coming for all the wicked dead. All those who are outside of God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, they are going to be all brought back to life at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, and they'll all go before the great white throne judgment. They'll be judged for everything they've ever done that was recorded in these books because they didn't accept Jesus' payment for their sins. Therefore, they're going to have to pay for them all themselves. And then, of course, he double-checks, and their name's not in the book of life, which is the greatest sin, because God offered them salvation, paid for it, gave it to them, but they didn't receive it. And those were then all cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. They're brought into the presence of God a second time and removed from his presence a second time. 
That's why it's called the second death. But those of us who are in Christ have received the crown of life or the crown which is eternal life. We've been given it, but we will experience it in full when we see him face to face. But this crown is a picture that the, the hearers that Paul was writing to and James is writing to would understand. And here John in Revelation was writing about would understand. The hearers understood that the crown was a, a wreath that was given to the athlete when they won their race. Well, again, go to 1 Corinthians 9. I could talk to you about it, but I'd much rather let, you, let Scripture talk about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verses 24 and 25. Paul said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. They would win, and then they would get to the reward time, the bema. That's why it was called the bema, the bema seat. And they would, would get the reward, and the reward was a crown, or a, a leaf, a, a, sorry, a wreath of leaves. They raced for one that would rot, deteriorate, but we're working for one that's imperishable. Now, one of the things that's caused some people some confusion over the years is this crown, which is life, is also called some other things in the scriptures. It's called the crown of righteousness. It's also called the crown of glory. Let me show you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul's near the end of his life, and he knows that he's about to die. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, listen to what he says. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's important. Keep that in mind for later on, because we're going to be talking about passing the test, and you're going to see somebody that looks like they didn't pass the test. And we're going to be clarifying something for you. So keep that in mind. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So here, the crown of life is also called the crown of righteousness. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 4. Peter, as an elder, says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of what? Glory. Now, People have thought there's a crown of glory, there's a crown of righteousness, there's a crown of life. I actually think there's one crown, but it has many attributes or aspects of it. I actually think that these are all these these rewards are all imperishable. You see that there. You're going to receive the what kind of crown of glory? Unfading. That's unfading. Keep that in mind. It's imperishable, unfading. These are these are all 
imperishable and unfading, but they're descriptive of the different characteristics of our salvation. As we, as we see the writers in the New Testament talk about the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, I believe it's actually talking about all of the same thing, which is a reward for our salvation. Go to with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and you're already in chapter 5, back up to chapter 1, I mean, verses 3 and following. Look closely. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is what? Imperishable and undefiled and what? Unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Don't miss what he's saying. Thank God we have been given this eternal life, this salvation that is imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And it's already ours, but it will be given to us fully when? When we finish the race. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. When you finish the race is when you get the crown. You already have eternal life. But there's aspects of what your eternal life. There's, there's rewards that you're going to get. You get the reward when you finish the what? The race. You have salvation. But there's aspects of that salvation that are going to be added to what you've already been given. Righteousness. Glory. You see what I'm saying? It's all the same crown. It's all the same reward but you'll get it at the end of the race. And the only ones who get it are the ones who finish the race by faith. Those will be the ones who pass the test. Oh, these trials have come to prove your what is genuine? Your faith. That's the big key. But there's also something here in this section of verses that we've been looking at in James that I can't wait to show you. There's something here in our previous verses that all tie together into Jesus' teaching about the parable of the soils. I've never seen this before, but as I've been praying through James and laying out where God wants us to go, all of a sudden something about the parable of the soils just jumped off the page at me. Go to, go to Matthew chapter 13. So if you, as you know, Jesus taught about the parable of the soils, how the sower went out and he sowed the seed and some fell on the path, some fell on the... Rocky soil, some fell on the thorny soil, and some fell on the good soil. Well, Jesus in Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23, explains the parable. So in Matthew 13, look at what Jesus says in verse 18. He said, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word, the word of the kingdom, and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown where? In his heart. Don't miss that. Even those who have the seed snatched away, it was sown in their hearts. 
Don't miss that. Everyone hears. Put a finger here in Matthew 13. Go back with me to James chapter 1 and look at verse 21. You need to see this before we can really move on. In James chapter 1, verse 21, look at what he says here. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive the, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Remember how we looked at it in our introduction, how James was writing mainly to believers, but he also was writing to those who weren't believers? And look what he says. He says, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I say to anybody that's here who doesn't know him, anybody that's here watching, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ and he's never sealed you by his spirit, you know the truth. You might have not understood it, but you know it enough that it's, you should have responded more than just going, oh, I'm not, I don't understand. Or it's a little confusing. Everyone hears. Everyone hears. But he didn't understand what was sown in his heart. And the enemy came and snatched it away. Go back to Matthew 13. Verse 20, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Ashvoa was sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit, and it yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. By the way, do you realize you just read the first part of James chapter 1? Do you see it? Trials. They've come to prove our faith genuine. Some receive the trials. They don't pass the test. And Jesus didn't do for them like they thought he would. Mama died. I got cancer. I didn't get the job I wanted. She left me. Whatever. And they walk away from the faith even though they once professed it. And then the Bible says some seed falls on the thorny soil. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of what? Wealth. Didn't we just look at that in verses 9 through 11? That's another test. It's another trial to prove our faith genuine. Some people don't pass that test. The test of wealth is actually a harder test. It's harder to trust the Lord when you have money. It's not impossible, but it's really hard. And many don't pass that test, and they walk away because the things of this world are more interesting to them. Like I said, some don't pass the test. Hardship, they fall away. Wealth, they're lured away. That word lured is going to be important as we get to verses 13 and following. Only the truly saved will pass the test and receive the crown, which is life. Only the truly saved will pass the test of faith in the trials of this life and receive the crown, which is life. So go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. This is actually a passage of scripture that has caused great debate among Christians. In verse 6, it says this, sorry, verse 4, Hebrews 6, verse 4, For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, remember, they had the word implanted, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean they were saved, 
and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And then he makes a very great illustration. He says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those who, uh, whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and is, its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Don't miss what he's saying. He said there are people who are going to have had their eyes open to the truth. The Spirit of God's going to actually have shown them. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They know deep down the truth, but if they walk away, it's hard to bring them back to repentance. And on top of that, he then gave this simple illustration. The rain falls on all the land. And some places it produces cultivated and wonderful crops. Other places it just produces thorns and thistles. The land all received the same rain. How it responded to it showed whether or not it was good soil or bad soil. What about those who have never heard? There's no such people, folks. Some hear more than others. And that's God's plan, and he gets to do it however he wants. But everyone hears. But everyone who receives the word will go through tests, trials. Some of it will be poverty. Some of it will be wealth. Some of it will be all different kinds. And for those who have really received the word and have been sealed by the Spirit of God, those are the ones who will pass the test. Not only have they already been given eternal life, one day when they finish the race, they'll receive the crown of life, which is also righteousness and glory and all the other aspects of what has come with our salvation. My question for you is this, not have you passed the test of whether or not you're saved. We'll ask that question a little later. But are you just satisfied with being saved or are you striving toward that day when you will see him face to face and you'll get your rewards at the Bema seat? Are you wanting him to say, well done, and you'll receive great reward? Now let's go down to verse 13. We're going to get a little bit more information about some of these trials and some of these tests. In verses 13 through 16, he then goes on, James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured, is that word again, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I'm going to read it to you again. This is what we're going to break down in the time we have left tonight. Let no one say when he is tempted, tested. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, as we go through these trials that God is orchestrating for his purposes, we must realize 
that we cannot blame God if we fail them. Now, what I want to clarify as we get into this now is, when we talk about passing the test, passing the test is keeping the faith. You understand what I'm saying? That's the test of for the crown of life. There are individual little trials that we're going to lose a few. And when those trials come, we can't say, well, this is God's fault. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. That's already been tried. In Genesis chapter 3, look at verses 8 through 13. Satan has come into the garden. By the way, who let Satan in the garden? God did. He had control whether or not the serpent would be allowed in the garden, and he let him for his purposes. Look at verses 8 to 13, and they've already bit whatever fruit it was, Adam and Eve both. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Stop real quick before he answers. Why does God ask him a question that God already knows the answer to? He wants him to not only know the answer, he wants him to, what's that word? It starts with the word, it starts with the letter C. Confess. Confession is agreeing with God. Have you eaten of the tree I told you not to? Confession is, yes, you're right, I did. I agree, what you said is right, and I didn't do it. But he doesn't do that. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree I ate. He isn't just blaming her. He's blaming God. In other words, I was here all by myself. I didn't ask for her. You did this. Of course, if you remember back when God did this, he woke up and said, yes, this is a good gift. I'm pretty excited about this. I've been naming all these animals and they all got mates and I don't have one. And now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she looks like me. Thank you, God. This is awesome. But the moment he sinned, immediately it was no longer his fault. It was God's fault. It was the woman's fault. And now... The woman, of course, goes on and says, says to the woman, what have you done? He said, it's not my fault. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Oh, by the way, we already answered this question, but who allowed the serpent into the garden? So she's also still kind of blamed God too. Now we're going to go pretty deep here for a little bit because you need to understand what's really going on in this battle. We are going to be in a battle the rest of our lives until we get out of these bodies. That's why Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? Oh, thank be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord. But we need to know what's really going on in the depth of this. So first and foremost, don't ever go down that road of saying this is God's fault, not mine. God does not tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted, but... God allows or doesn't allow, he chooses, he allows or doesn't allow Satan to do what he does for God's purposes. Satan is actually a tool of God. 
He's an instrument that God uses. Was Nebuchadnezzar accountable for everything Nebuchadnezzar did to the nation of Israel? Yes, very much so. But God used Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how we read many times when we did our study of Daniel? He's my servant. God used him as a tool to accomplish his purposes. Nebuchadnezzar is still responsible, and he knew Nebuchadnezzar was going to do what he did. He knows what Satan's going to do, and God uses that for his purposes. Oh, don't think it's God's fault. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, the scripture says that uh, the angels have to appear before God, and Satan came with them. Why? Because he's a created being, just like the rest of the angels. He's still allowed to be in the presence of God. People say, well, God can't be in the presence of evil. Yes, he can. Satan's in his presence, the Bible says in the book of Romans, daily accusing us. Oh, but when God says to Satan, what have you been up to? Satan can't say none of your business. God's jerking his chain a little bit and says, Satan, what have you been up to? And Satan's answer is this, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth. Now, Peter tells us that he goes to and fro throughout the earth doing what? Like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So in other words, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to devour. God then says, have you ever noticed Job? Here's a righteous man. And Satan quickly says, yeah, I've noticed him, but you've put this hedge of protection around him. I can't get to him. God controls whether Satan's allowed in or not. And God says, I tell you what, I'll let you. But here are the parameters. You can't touch him. But again, who's controlling what Satan is allowed to do in the trial, in the test that's just about to come into Job's life? God is. Is he to be blamed? No. As you're going to see, it's not just Satan who's tempting us. It's actually, it's already within us. Job chapter 2, by the way, comes along and Job had already responded well to this amazing trial of losing all of his family and his possessions. And God says to Satan, what you been up to? He goes to and fro throughout the earth. He goes, have you noticed Job? He goes, yeah, the only reason he responded the way he did is because you wouldn't let me touch him. You let me touch him skin for skin. He'll curse you to your face. God says, I'll tell you what, here are the parameters. You can touch him, but you just can't kill him. Of course, he gives him boils that were so painful he wishes he could die. His wife even now allows Satan to speak through her, and she says what? Curse God and die. Same thing Satan had just said he would do. That's why when Jesus uh, had Peter right behind him saying, hey, I'm not going to let you go to the cross, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I know who's talking. I know who's really talking through you right now. Listen closely, though. God says, all right, here are the parameters, and he lets Satan do it. God controls how much Satan's allowed to do in our lives, in tests and trials. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, for the sake of time, we're not going to turn there, but Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Remember the Lord's Prayer? We pray, our Father who art in heaven, lead us not, verse 13, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, Lord, you control whether or not the test or the trial is going to come, and personally, rather not have any. Yet, if you say yes, I need you to deliver me from the evil one. Too many of you are losing these battles because you're trying to fight him yourself. You can't. I'm going to tell your story, Lacey. Years and years ago, when uh, our kids were little, Elise might have been four at the time, 
We actually were at a resort over in Orlando. We had passes and we went to Disney and Jim and Beth Capel and their kids came over and had dinner with us that night in the resort. And uh, we all had a great night. But when they came, they came with a plate full of big chocolate chip cookies. And we set the chocolate chip cookies on the little coffee table in the resort. And we told all of our kids, our three and Capel's kids, we said, listen, you get one cookie tonight. You can have it before dinner. You can have it after dinner. But you only get one. You get to eat it whenever you want. Is it understood? Yeah, you can. And, but you only get one. They said, well, Elise quickly scarfed hers right then. At the end of the night, we've had dinner. We've hung out. We played. And then when it was time for the Capels to leave and head back to their place, as we were saying goodbye at the door to the Capels, I realized, counting heads, one of our kids was missing. And I turn around, and Elise is in the little corner of the room like this. And I knew exactly what was going on. She saw her opportunity while we were all at the door with our backs turned, and she grabbed another cookie and was trying to scarf it. I turned around and I said, Elise, and she turns around and there is chocolate chip all over her face. I sat her down on the couch with the cookies right there and I said, honey, you did hear us, didn't you? Yes, daddy. You did hear me say you only were allowed one cookie, right? She said, yes. I said, then why did you sneak another one? She said, daddy, and she burst into tears. She said, Daddy, I knew, when, I knew I wasn't supposed to do it, but when I walked by the cookies, they were too strong for me. And I remember hugging her neck and saying, Honey, that'll preach. And I've been sharing that illustration now for coming up on 23 years. Folks, you can't fight the battle. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus has also designed these trials, not only to prove our salvation, but to also give us another opportunity to turn to him. To turn to him. We turn to him and say, keep me from this hour of trial. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? Yet if you choose for your purposes not to grant this request, I need you. My eyes are on you for the victory. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 goes this way. No temptation has seized you, but such is common to man. In other words, don't think whatever it is you're tempted with, no one else is struggling with it. Trust me, many others are. And God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. He knows where each of us are. And with the temptation, remember, he's allowing it, he'll provide a way for you to escape. He'll give you the victory. But you have to turn to him in the temptation. We also must know and realize that when we are tempted to sin, it comes from where? According to James chapter 1. Look at it again. Verse 14. But when each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Remember Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it? No, the devil didn't make you do it. It was already in you. Remember back Adam and Eve in the garden? Sinless, created in perfection. It was already in them. It was already there. He had, they have a choice. And they chose to disobey God. 
Go to Romans 7. I already mentioned this passage earlier, but let's look at closely at what Paul says. Romans 7, verses 15 through 25. Romans 7, verses 15 through 25. Paul's talking about his struggle with keeping God's law and how the law fuels sin. Verse 15, he says, For I don't understand my own actions. For I don't don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do, sorry, do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close in hand, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members, my body, body parts, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now Paul In writing this, some people twisted it and said, well, your flesh is is sinful, your spirit's good, therefore whatever you do in your body doesn't really matter. You can do all the sexual sin you want because your spirit's alive, your flesh is bad, it's going to go away. And that form of Gnosticism was being taught. That's why Jude had to write the book he wrote, and Paul had to talk about that in the book of Galatians. No, no, no. This doesn't mean that we're not accountable, that Paul says it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. But in other words, God is showing us that even though in our inner man now we've been made alive, we we delight in the law of God. When we sin now, does it feel good? No, it doesn't. We hate it. But we got a problem. We're not out of these bodies yet that are still under the curse. And until then, God has designed it that we live each day by faith in the one who lives within us, yielded to him. And these trials have come to produce God's purposes and accomplish God's purposes. And we need his wisdom and we need the Holy Spirit to help us when we pray in these battles. Because the Holy Spirit knows the purposes of God for why he's allowed the trial. We may not, but he does. That's why we need to learn how to walk with him in the midst of the trial. In order to have victory, though, in our temptations... By yielding to the Spirit of God within us to give us the victory, we need to know where the problem lies and how the victory is won. And that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time doing tonight in the time we have left. Let's take a look at where the problem lies and how to have victory. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 15 through 17. says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and this he clarifies what he means by that, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, he's not saying that bowling is bad or watching TV is bad and all these things. Those are things people say, oh, that's in the world. No, 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 be careful. Um, the Bible's real clear that God's given us all these things to enjoy. Is sex bad? No, if it's within God's design. All, is eating bad? No, it's a great thing. Within God's design, everything God's given us for our enjoyment. Now, the things of the world, though, are the desires that go outside of God's design. Sex outside of our marriage. Eating more than we should eat. You see what I'm saying? That's what we're talking about. The pride of life, the, the, the desires of the world, wanting to be big and famous and noticeable. It's so sad that our young people today are being taught that they need to be influencers and get as many likes as they can and the popularity and all that things. Folks, that's the things of this world. The Bible actually says the true attitude of us should be, Lord, I just want to live the life that you have for me. If you're to enlarge my tent stakes, may you be the one who do it. May, not I seek, may I not seek to be more than you have designed for me to be. Do you remember back when he talked about the parable of the soils? Some produced the crop. The good soil produced the crop. Some 100, some 60, some 30. Why? Because God has a different plan for each of us. And I want you to understand that the, this world is going to say, become the most important, be bigger, be better, be greater. That sounds real good, but actually Jesus says, I just want you to be satisfied with the life that I have for you. And if you humble yourself to the role that I have for you, one day the last will be first. Those who sought to be first, they'll be last. Would you rather have more likes here or up there? I'd rather have more up there. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now be sober. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you had suffer, have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By the way, there's a lot of purposes for God's trials, but I hope you understand the greatest one. The greatest purpose in all of our trials, now God has different purposes for each of us in all of our trials, but I can guarantee you there's one that applies to every single one of us, and that's to drive us to him. To drive us to him. Because he wants to be the everything in our lives. He doesn't want to be first. He wants to be everything. See, because first means he's first, but then there are other things that are second and third and so on. He's in the line. No, no, no. He wants to be everything in all aspects of your life. Just recently, as I was doing a marriage conference, as we were discussing one of the topics that I was teaching, 
this man and one of the couples spoke up and he said, a lot of people go to marriage conferences in hopes of getting a better marriage. That's their goal. He said, God's purpose is that we would come to know him better. And if you come to know him better, one of the benefits and the overflows will be your marriage will increase. But we've got to, we've got to stop seeking a better marriage and start seeking God more. Everything is about following him. But look closely. We're to humble ourselves under his mighty hand so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And we need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him. Now, I stopped there for a reason. Who wrote this? Peter. I'm going to ask you that again. Let that sink in for a minute. Who's writing to us about resisting the enemy who's looking for someone to devour? Peter. By the way, didn't Peter have to learn this the hard way himself? Go back with Luke. Yeah, very good. Go to Luke 22. You're, that's what you're talking about, Sheila. Luke 22. Go Look at verses 31 through 34. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus is actually talking to the whole group to start, but he gets very specific with Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That, that, those yous are in the plural, by the way, in the Greek. He asked to sift all of the disciples like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That's why some of your translations add the word Simon here. The word Simon is only there twice in the original text. But some of your translations say, but I prayed for you, Simon. They do that to clarify that that you is singular. Jesus says, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Oh, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, before we go any further, don't miss what Jesus says to him. You're going to fail this trial. And when you come back, strengthen your brothers. Of course, Peter says, uh, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, actually, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So when Peter writes to us and said, we need to be alert that our enemy is looking for someone to devour. And we need to cast our anxieties on the Lord. Do you think he, not, he understood what, we're, what he's talking about? Because Satan was allowed to mess with him, not just him, but also all the rest of the disciples. And they were all scattered. And not only were they all scattered, Peter actually said three times, I never met the guy. The third time, he actually swore. When it says he swore, he didn't say a bad word. What he said was this, I swear to God. That's what he actually said. I swear to God, I never met the guy. I'll put my hand on a Bible. But you know what? Some of you would say, whoa, 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 Jim and Jim, Jim, earlier you said that passing the test is proof of our salvation. Peter failed the test. Go back again to this, these verses. But I prayed for you that your what may not fail. Your faith. Listen, what did I tell you earlier? We're going to have little individual tests that we're going to fail. It's going to happen. And if you say you don't, the truth's not in you, the Bible says. I'll show you that in just a second. But when we're talking about passing the test, we're talking the passing the test of faith. Those who passed, blessed is he who is steadfast, stand firm or steadfast under trial. For when he has passed the test of faith, he will receive the crown, which is life. 
We all fail in temptations from time to time. But to fail the test is, when, is to fail when it comes to true faith or not. Go to 1 John chapter 2 again. We're going to start again in verse 15, but we're going to keep reading. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where we talked about the cares of, or sorry, the, the, the things of this world. Go to 1 John again, starting in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they are not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you, and if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Then he says, if you know him, he's, that he's, he's righteous, and you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born in him. Now, wait a minute, Jim. Doesn't John say anyone that denies the Son isn't saved? Didn't Jesus deny? I'm sorry, Peter denied Jesus? Didn't he deny him? Hang on. He acted for a time like he didn't know him, but his salvation was already secure. Why? Well, you got to go back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's not building it on Peter. He's actually, the rock is his profession. Actually, when he says, On this rock I'll build my church, it's in the feminine, which clarifies that it's not Peter he's talking about. All right. It's talking about Peter's profession of his faith. But don't miss something. And I have to do this for the second time. You'll have to double check me later on. When Jesus first meets Peter, his name is what? Simon. 
And he actually says, you are Simon. One day, you're going to have a new name. You're going to be a new person, and you're going to be called Peter. At this point, Jesus says, you've just become that new person. Flesh and blood didn't open my eyes to your eyes to who I am. My father's opened your eyes. And because of your profession, my father is sealing you, and you're now that new creation. Now, in Luke 22, though, Jesus calls him by his old name to get his attention. He goes, Simon, Simon. He's already been told he's Peter. He says, Simon, Simon. In other words, you're going to look like the old guy for a while. But don't miss this. Jesus says, and I prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Peter says, I'm, <laughs> you're wrong. I'm willing to go to prison and death for you. And Jesus says this. Don't miss this. I tell you who. No. He says, Peter. He says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny three times. In other words, you're going to look like Simon. I see the new creation. Remember, our salvation is being kept in heaven by God. It's not being held on to by us. Well, why does the Bible talk about us if we stand firm, if we stand firm? Because that's the only way that you're going to fully know that God is holding on to you is that in the midst of the trial, you don't go anywhere else. Oh, you might waver. You might doubt. Folks, I'll look you right in the eye and I'll tell you straight up, even though I've been preaching God's word for over 40 years full time, there are times that I even start to go, is this the truth? I sure hope this is the truth. And those thoughts will come into my mind. Hey, if it'll happen to John the Baptist. I'm okay with it happening to me. But I can tell you this much, even though the enemy might cause me to wonder and my flesh might ask me to, a question or two that I wrestle with, I'm not going anywhere. And it's not because I'm really good at hanging on to Jesus. It's because he's really good at hanging on to me. And when I used to walk with my girls and we'd hold their hands and we were going down a road or near a road where the cars were going by, I didn't have them hold my hand. I held theirs. You know why? Because if they held my hand, they were only connected to me by their strength, which wasn't much. But if I held their hand, my hand would envelop their hand and they weren't going anywhere. You are not holding on to Jesus. If you're truly saved, he's holding on to you. But you have to stay faithful on your end. He's never going to let you go if you've been sealed. Did Peter deny that Jesus was the Christ? No, he didn't say he's not the Christ. He just said he didn't know him. Do you see the difference? He didn't say Jesus is not the Christ. He just said, I, I, I never met the guy. <laughs> Trying to save his own neck. Oh, but after his resurrection from the dead, that same Peter stood up full of the Holy Spirit and said, this Jesus whom you crucified, preaching to the people in Jerusalem. He stood before that same group of people, the Sanhedrin that had Jesus put to death, and he said, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and risen from the dead. What had happened to him? Oh, the work that God had begun was starting to take full root. He might have stumbled a time or two, but he never fell. Why? Because his salvation was real. And he passed the test. Not only did he pass the test, he actually was crucified for the Lord and upside down. 
because of time, we're not going to get into this because this is too important to do it fast. I could do it fast. But when we pick up next week, I want to talk to you about the fact, though, that the Bible says those who are really saved do not make a practice of sinning. There's a difference between not sinning anymore and not making a practice of sinning. You still will sin. None of us will ever get to the place in this flesh of sinless perfection. But I will make this statement and I'll let you meditate on it till we get back. If you're truly saved, you won't become sinless till you get out of this body. But you should sin less. Do you understand the difference? There's a difference, and 1 John's going to lay it all out. He just has said to us, those who know the Lord don't make a practice of sinning. But at the same time, it doesn't mean you don't sin. And we're going to learn a little bit more of how to have victory, and especially how to deal with forgiveness when we do lose those little battles in this life. But the question I'll ask you as we close is this. Will you and have you stood the test? And hopefully your answer is yes, but I haven't gotten the crown yet because I haven't finished the race. I want to say to you, finish well. Hopefully the finish line's close, but we don't know. Until then, keep getting closer to Jesus. I love you all. We'll see you next week.